the reason it never dwindled in terms of popularity it was popular when it, when it when it, once it came out a lot of film critics a lot of film directors would watch the film repeatedly and pick out little things here and there welcome to the crooked table podcast where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle and now your host robert yannis jr welcome to the crooked table podcast this is rob on this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. On this episode, I'm joined by Brian Suspielis. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Uh, thank you, Robert. So tell people a little bit about who you are and uh, where they can find your work online. Well, um, I'm Brian Suspielis. I'm based in Florida. I'm a writer for In Session Film. And you can find me at, at Brian under slash uh, Cine or Cine uh, Man. Maybe, maybe people can understand, <laughs> uh, understand the, the name. But um, uh, yeah, yeah, I come up you know, every week. I specialize writing for Criterion channels and Criterion releases, uh, pr- primarily like the older uh, the older films, not like the current ones today. <laughs> Obviously, with the the current situation, dark. <laughs> what current ones? Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm talking about years ago, decades ago. Yeah, I actually just recently, because I, I obviously have been aware about the, the Criterion Collection forever, and I I've been meaning to sort of uh, venture into that part of my collection a little bit. So I actually recently picked up the Before Trilogy box set. So for someone like me, who's sort of a newbie to the Criterion uh, world, what would be some of the uh, some of the the Blu-rays that you would recommend that I check out first? Um, I probably you know off the top of my head, Four Hundred Blows, Francois Truffaut, uh, the movie we're about to talk about, Eight and a Half. Yeah. We also got you know, a lot of Ingmar Bergman films from there. Of course, we lost uh, Max von Sydow last week. And they, they did, because I, I think they have a Criterion box set, if I'm not mistaken, of Ingmar Bergman stuff. I don't know. Not a box set. I mean, I, I know that they probably have like his early films from the 40s altogether. Um, you could probably find it in large groups if you go to like Criterion Channel also, because Seventh Seal, Persona, Fanny and Alexander, it's... It's just so jam-packed with the special features. It's, you know, scenes from marriage. I think um, as also we should probably mention, since the whole coronavirus thing is happening, people that are looking for streaming entertainment, the Criterion Channel is a pretty good uh, good place to turn. Yeah, good advertising because it's, it's a free trial for 14 days, two yeah. weeks. Not a sponsor every- of the show, unfortunately, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not a sponsor of the show, but I'm a Criterion buff, and... You know, I've been been seeing, I guess, over the weekend, I've been really seeing a lot of films or rewatching, and they keep putting, bringing in stuff, alternating, and it's just endless. Just endless stuff. Um, Yes, it's old. Yes, it's old. Yes, it's black and white. Yes, it's in a foreign language. But if if we all celebrate Parasite's best picture victory, we can all certainly watch more of these international films and get over that one inch. I was, gonna, I was just going to quote Bong, Bong Joon-ho there too. Yeah. 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 I mean, and it's good that, it, you know, it's good that you chose uh, such a classic release because I will readily admit that kind of a lot of the older films, I'm not as well versed on as I should be. Uh, and I know that every once in a while film Twitter kind of goes crazy on, you know, whether or not you're, you know, you know as much about film blah, blah, blah. But I think the, the point, the biggest thing is that you're, trying to in the you know us film people are trying to enrich themselves we're seeking these things out and uh try you know trying to fill in some gaps of you know our knowledge of cinema i feel like you know it's disheartening even for someone who's not as well versed on classic films like myself to see whenever anybody posts anything film related they're like what's your favorite blah blah and there's like literally nothing before 1990 or even like all like movies in the last five years you know that kind of thing i feel like we're losing in a way. And I don't know if that's because of the, uh, what do you, you know, what do you think is sort of um, behind that? The fact that we're losing our connection to kind of classic cinema. Do you think it's just that everybody's just so focused on streaming and a lot of these films aren't available or what do you kind of credit that to? 
I think, you know, the streaming generation, as I like to call it, you know, we're in this new era where everything is streaming and most of our TVs in the last decade plus have kind of expanded, uh, you know, to movie like, you know, features. Mm -hmm. So people, you know, so people want to watch HBO and Netflix and Hulu and and Amazon Prime. I have, of course, I watch shows too and we're we've seen you know as example by uh fox selling their studios to disney is like it's just the franchises have you know really taken over mm-hmm. um, a lot of big studio stuff obviously there's a strong indie film there's a strong indie genre and that we always uh like to promote but in terms of just theater success it's that's been the the marvel slash dc movies it's been the live action remakes it's been everything disney has been putting out basically and uh yeah and then the the increased i guess corporatization of everything of media and i I, what do you what do you think is going to happen now because the big news as of this recording the last few days last couple days i think it was yesterday is what Universal is doing and putting their theatrical movies on streaming. Uh, so films like The Invisible Man, Emma, and The Hunt, and then Trolls World Tour, which was supposed to be a wide theatrical release in April, are now just going to be available for 48-hour rental for, I think, $19.99. How do you think that's mm-hmm. going to change the game? Because I feel like this is, could be a fulcrum point that sort of tips the scales more towards streaming in a way to, from the theatrical experience, which on the one hand, as a student of pop culture, I'm really curious how it's going to play out. And on the other hand, as a person who really loves going to the movies, I don't, I'm kind of worried that's going to threaten that experience somewhat. Yeah. I suspect the students are going to keep the big films for the movie theater when, when they reopen. So I don't, I don't expect to see uh, no time to die, get the, the rent to release. Right. I don't think Disney's going to, really release Mulan to streaming so quickly see Universal just they just punted Fast and Furious 9 back a year Mm -hmm. so I think there'll be some films that will get they'll get the rental treatment and I think it's kind of good you know it keeps them churning out stuff doesn't make everything just stop in terms of their you know their planned because a lot of you know, say the productions have frozen, so they have to, you know, whatever that they're in post production with, you know, I would say if it's definitely worth seeing on streaming. I'm I'm a guy that prefers to see it on the big screen. You know, I'm just biased like that. Yeah, but I think it's good that they put Birds of Prey earlier for rent for streaming because because it came out last month. Yeah, so I wonder if we'll see either just more of a split where we'll have the you know the major AMC and Regals that'll carry the big releases, and then people that want to see the small smaller films on the big screen will just have to find their local boutique theater if their town is lucky enough to have one. Uh, like here in Tampa, we have the Tampa Theater, uh, and you know, or or if you know, even for the big movies, we'll start seeing that that window shrink between theatrical release, kind of like what they're doing with Birds of Prey. Granted, this is obviously extenuating circumstances all across the board right now with all the theaters closing, but it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and how that turns executives, you know, studio executives' minds as far as, oh, well, that worked out. Why don't we just try that again with this, you know, this 40 minutes? But this notion that you're seeing, like you were mentioning, that that you're seeing people writing up these, oh, they should just release Mulan, on Disney Plus, I'm like, that's a 200 million dollar movie. That's not happening. I mean, there's no way doing that. It's a far cry from like Lady and the Tramp, which I think like cost 40 million or something. Uh, it's like, come on. Yeah, because the, the, the releases are going to be so jam packed, packed, um, that they're probably going to have to want to empty some, give some breathing space to what they have coming out. Yeah. Um, so especially with any other film that's planning to come out towards later in the year. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a total shit show. I'm really curious to see what's going to happen now, whenever theaters do open up again, if everything's just going to just, you know, we're just going to get all those March, April, May releases 
in the fall, maybe that September kind of lulled that won't even happen now because everything will be coming out or if everything just gets pushed to 2021 kind of Fast and Furious style. But it's definitely, a, you know, I, I, you're the first guest I've had on the show since this whole issue has happened. So I, I, I thought it would be uh, fitting that we kind of just address that a little bit. Yeah. And me being, you know, like many others, you know, watching the Oscar race. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that they haven't officially said it, but I doubt Khan's going to go on, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But let's say, let's say they go goes back to normal in the summer. That would be Telluride, then Toronto. You got Venice, and <laughs> Venice is a different story. But you know, that's when the Oscar films start the releases. You know, get shown to critics to build up the buzz. So it's so again, it's it's all it's way jam packed. For every studio, I'm you know my concern for the indie films is that they, they may get squeezed out um, because A24 was about to release uh, First Cow, mm-hmm. you know, with from Kelly, I can't pronounce that, Reichart, Reichart, I think, I think it's Reichart, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they were about to release that, then they had, then A24 held it back. Um. So every so for all the studios in terms of post production films that they're going to, about to release and in production, it's they're all just going on the fly and just trying to get get this everything scheduled right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Stay tuned. Um, but yeah, so as you mentioned, we're going to be talking about Eight and a Half, the Federico Fellini film. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. Guido, Guido, dove corri, disgraziato? Guido, vuoi salire, no? Vieni qua, buffone. Ah, allora è una parte che devo fare. Mi hai preso per una delle tue... That was a little bit of the trailer or a trailer that I was able to find. Obviously, they don't have the original 1960s whatever trailer uh, that I readily available on YouTube, at least that I could find. But uh, Eight and a Half, directed by Federico Fellini, starring Marcello Mastroiano. Did I pronounce? I think I pronounced that right. Yeah, I'm half Italian. You think I'd be able to do these things a little better? But yeah, Marcello Mastroianni. Mastroianni. Okay, there you go. Really cool names, by the way. Um, but also. So eight and a half released June twenty fifth, nineteen sixty three. Obviously, you know Italian language, black and white. As I was mentioning to you right before we recorded, not a movie I should have tried to watch for the, my first time, like late at night <laughs> after a hard day, at, after you know an exhausting day of work, uh, just because it is a very challenging film. So, what is it specifically about this movie that made you want to talk about this on the podcast? First and foremost, it would have been Federico Fellini's a hundredth birthday this year okay nice and so um shout out to my uh to in session film with you know, and jd and brendan where we're right for they're doing kind of a analysis on every fellini film he's done and eight and a half in particular it, it's con- it's considered one of the greatest films ever made it's certainly in my top 10 of favorite films it's a movie about create creating or lack thereof or failure to create because it's about uh, a director having director's block. And I think for anyone who is a director, a writer, a musician, a painter, uh, any, any type of creative activity, you can relate to to the character Guido, uh, played by Mastriani, in some form. And for me, I've had moments, you know, in my life, and you know, being a writer, trying to be a writer, where I just kind of stopped. So, I, so I always have this like kind of subconscious, you know, what would you know, how would it go, you know, what would Guido think? Because you know, during throughout the movie, Guido has these fantasies that he goes in and out of 
uh, while he's trying to direct the movie that he doesn't know what it's, it's about. Yeah, and I think that uh, that sort of meta uh, commentary of the film was was apparent to me, like in the first few minutes, because right from the get go, the the movie feel is feels like it's commenting on itself. So you get the sense that that uh, Guido is obviously just Federico Fellini, sort of kind of exploring his own uh, his own life, his own creative process, and putting that on the screen, which feels like something that probably had never been done before at this point in cinema. Does that sound about right? I, you know, I think for Fellini, because eight and a half refers to um, the amount of movies he was made, he had made at the time. Did he uh, eight? Because this was his eighth full film, and then he did a film where he ha- where he was co-director with. And this came off just kind of a quick backstory. This came off the success of La Dolce Vita in 1960. And then whatever movie he was going to make, he, he didn't, he didn't know. He really didn't know himself what to write, what was going to be about. He like the, the working title was the beautiful confusion. And so, and it was just kind of, kind of an accident. that He came to realize, Oh, oh let's make a movie about a director. who can't direct, which he <laughs> suffered. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that really, it's, it's one of those conceits. It's one of those ideas I think that could even, could either come across as brilliant or really pretentious. And for the honest, to be honest with you, for the for my first time watching this, I think the first half I kind of kept teetering back and forth a little bit on that. Uh, what was your experience watching this movie for the first time? When did you first see it? I saw it in college because I minored in film. Um, shout out Lynn University. And I, you know, I learned about four movies a lot and eight and a half was just one of those films always that one of the teachers, professors would have. Right. And I was able to get my hand on it and I watched it. Like first time I watched it, I was kind of, I was confused. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> that's where i'm at right now <laughs> it's still it's still so fresh i feel like just watching it one time you're not really getting anything you're not really getting enough from it yeah because it because it's it is it is surreal it is kind of it is you know a lot of fantasy in it a lot going in that you don't know what he's trying to say but but you know it took me a couple times to get through eight and a half probably a lot of critical thinking and studying Fellini's films and just because Fellini's just a character of his own with these, I don't know what, what do you, I guess what's the word I guess would be um, Baroque would be, I guess would be one description of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause if you see films like if you see La Strada, if you see Knights of Cabiria, La Dolce Vita, and then afterwards where he had armor cord and and the ship sails on. It's he, he. He's not. He's not a straightforward, straight-thinking director. He's never been. He never was. Right. I should say. And he always, you know, you know, he always kind of challenged the status quo a little bit. Especially, you know, this was post-war Italy that he got through, and. And so he was a little more open. So Italian films, even in Catholic Italy, was more open, talking about, you know, sex and affairs. Um, and, you know, La Dolce Vita was actually the first film with the use of paparazzi, something that Hollywood stars really hate today. And you kind of see it again, eight and a half. For Guido, you know, he puts himself as Guido, uh, the director. Mm-hmm. Who's got? Who has? You know, he's married, but he has a mistress. He's got a muse that he like that he follows. He goes. He thinks about his childhood, like when he was a kid. Like his, he lost his quote unquote virginity, not in the sexual way. When seeing a dancing prostitute when he was a kid, you know, thinking about his mother. So it's very, it, it's very self-reflexive, and there's some stuff. Especially here in other works that you see Fellini as himself. It it lays the the characters' faults 
pretty bare. I mean, you know, the movie doesn't really necessarily judge Guido for being, for, for it just kind of presents him as the way he is and, and the focuses on the relationships of the women in his life, but, you know, in a way that is not particularly moralistic and it, and I think conveys his sort of, you know, his inner struggle and the fact that he's trying to make sense of his life kind of in just kind of the way we are watching the film. Uh, you know, yeah. And the thing he lacks is control. Right. So one of the most famous sequences is a dream where he has all these women in a room. <laughs> I was going to bring that sequence up. That was crazy. <laughs> One's about to start like a one wants to be a rebel. And he and he, here he is, the harem, and he kind of whips them all back in line. Right. It's also just the I, I know I like I, I know some classifications have this movie as a comedy drama. Do you consider this a, a comedy drama? Because that, that to me felt like the, probably the most satirical sequence in the movie, just because you're like, wow, the ego on this guy <laughs> that he's just like, has everybody in their little place. And when they get, when they get too old, they age out of, out of, you know, his, his little uh, system there and they go upstairs and uh, it, like you said, literally whipping them. Uh, do you, do you think this is a particularly funny film other than, I guess, like I said, that sequence. I mean, you. There are some. St- I mean, I think it is fitting because he's got his dramatic right. moments. You know, like for example, with the estranged wife, who you know doesn't believe him. You know, like you know, why did you bring me here? You know, with when you have the mistress, not far in another hotel. Mm-hmm. And I think if you saw it the first time, then you watch it again, knowing a little more context, you can find those humorous scenes, especially when he interacts with uh, members of the crew um, who try to try to badger him on so many questions about the set or the causes or getting actors to play certain parts or, you know, the certain roles of certain actors. Yeah, because they basically it seems like nobody, including Guido, knows what the hell is going on, what film they're making, something vaguely to do with science fiction. There's a rocket ship at one point, sort of. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, I guess for me, watching it the first time, it was, you start off trying to, you know, your your literal mindedness coming to a film, since we're all used to, you know, straightforward linear narratives, is, okay, well, this is the dream, and this is real life. But even the real, air quotes, real life sequences in this film don't really make logical sense. They have that, and it reminded me of something like Eraserhead, which is again, also sort of surrealist where it, it, you're not living in a world that makes sense. You're, you're basically the, the entire thing is within, you know, within uh, Fellini's headspace. So it, it's not going to, it's not going to be uh, the kind of grounded narrative experience that you're used to. And I think that was for me, the early on, especially the first half of the film, trying to make sense of that, and just realizing at a certain point, like okay, we're we're off uh, we're off on another on another stratosphere here. So I just have to roll with that. Yeah, like if you see it for the first time, don't get put off by the first uh, like four minutes, right? Where he's in traffic, he's trapped. Then he gets out, he flies, then he's in the air, then he goes back down to earth, and then he wakes up. You know, I think it's just kind of like the first sequence of guido's mood um going as as he struggles to make his way uh, to make a picture yeah that that part i did really like actually a lot because he's literally commenting on eight and a half just as he's coming commenting on guido's film so i i like the sort of as you said self-reflectiveness of uh of those uh those sort of those references that's kind of self-awareness. And it, it, fe- it felt to me, it felt to me that this was almost kind of a therapeutic exercise in a way for Fellini. You know, there's that film Honey Boy that came out last year that literally was a therapeutic exercise for Shia yeah. LaBeouf. And this sort of feels like something that he's just like, you know, was in that same sort of director's block space and uh, just had, had no, you know, had no inspiration. It's just like, I'm going to make a film about how I have no inspiration and help me get, you know, get past that. And in that respect, I think it's, it's really kind of admirable that he was able to pull it off. Yeah. I mean, he had, and Fellini had that clout already, you know, to make a, such a, a right. film and risk it. 
because uh, I think a couple of the films, like La Strada, I think got best uh, international film, and Eight and a Half would actually win a uh, best international film also. It, it's so fully, and he also had like a, you know, he always had like a, he was, there's four writers, including himself on it. Mm-hmm. And each of them had like a different job in terms of adding scenes and dialogue. You know, and Fellini, he, and from, how do I, I say, because I know that he, sometimes he didn't share, go into too much with the Italian intelligista part with the other writers because he, because he had such a bigger position in being a, a, you know, being a director. You know, and, you know, he was married to a great actress, a comic actress, um, by the name of Gio. <sighs> Is it Giuseppe Massina? I think that's her for her name was, and she she'd been in a few of his movies. But you know, he also it was known that he also had discreet or indiscreet affairs. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so I guess you could probably say, you know, as you mentioned, you said before, it's you know he's getting away a movie talking about uh, himself, but he kind of throws in the caveats like you know. You know, why does he have a rocket ship there? Or, oh no, or the, you know, the dream sequences again, which you know, I think the more you analyze it, the more telling I think it is, especially towards uh, the climax of the film when he is being surrounded by the press who want to know what he's, what is the purpose of the film uh, that he's, you know, that he wants to make. Yeah, and we don't really – the movie never really answers that, which I also found really, uh, really interesting. So I do we think – like I know, again, as I was saying with the literal mindedness, do is there is there a, a read of this film where all of this is on, in his head or something like that? Because I sort of was like half expecting that to be a twist kind of at the end because it opens with him – in bed and obviously, you know, like recovering from, I guess it's supposed to be director's block or anxiety or whatever. I was almost half expecting the end of the movie to sort of flash back to that, where the whole thing was just kind of a, an elaborate fever dream of him, like trying to seek redemption because very much so throughout the movie, he's trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Why do I treat my wife this way? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like trying to sort out his own, you know, his own inner demons and that kind of thing. Uh, so I was kind of expecting it to go that way. And then later in the film, when he's hiding from uh, from the journalist, he crawls under a table and shoots himself in the head. So what what is kind of your interpretation of, I guess, everything I, guess, I, don't know, everything I just said? And then specifically the ending, because it, it gets even more surrealistic towards the end, where it just becomes kind of a some kind of a circus, basically. And, and uh, I think it's Carla who's kind of... Is, tells him what he was trying to say the whole time. What is your interpretation of the end of the movie? And like, what is the final statement? If this whole thing is sort of a reflection on, uh, on Fellini's process and his life and dealing with being a filmmaker and, and telling his, so his, you know, telling stories and all that stuff. What, it, where does the movie ultimately end? And what is kind of the, I guess, takeaway if there even is one, honestly. I, you know, I think, you know, you have the, the technical, struggles in the personal and I, you know i think going to that ending uh because it is you know that suicide it is kind of like a fantasy it's like a it's another metaphor of escape right you know he wants to escape you know maybe maybe that spaceship you know he wants to get in and really fly out and fly away <laughs> because he can't because he can't get out in any of this and mm-hmm. he he can't find uh anything happy in what he's doing you know, like he, like he has a scene where he, he tries to, he gets a meeting with um, a respected cardinal from the church, and you know it's kind of an unusual meeting because they're in, I think it's like a, not, it's not a sauna, but they're in like in this bath together, yeah, like a steam with, bath or something, yeah. You know, and it, for him, it, <laughs> yeah, the response is, you know, it's just. He doesn't really. He doesn't do anything. You know, he thought the cardinal could have felt him, and he can't even get an answer from, you know, the Catholic Church. You know, but then you also look at the the ending where 
when he does find out what he what he really wants to say and he does kind of get he kind of directs you would say by having people dance in a circle and you know he is on the megaphone getting people in line with you know actors that are playing people from his real life even as i even as i talk to you now i'm still trying to dissect mm-hmm. more and think again i just rewatched it and i'm <laughs> the more we watch the more i end up thinking about it you know which i think was why i still love the film right because it's, it's just, there's just way too many there's a ton of layers into it you know because it's such a surrealist thing that you don't know what's real or not you just have to kind of read into i think fellini's background to kind of pull pick it out one by one yeah it, it's it, it's really sort of an unsolvable puzzle in a way and i and i think I, he, the character is is fascinating in that you know you sort of empathize with him but also he brings a lot of this on himself so that you have that complication there and um just as you were i think you mentioned earlier his sort of his just need for control he he he's he wants to be in control of things but he doesn't want to make decisions so he's just like you know he has his mistress he brings her there and then he puts her in a hotel across the way and you know it kind of mostly ignores her the whole time uh, and he wants to you know i think a couple times in the film the women in his life sort of mention oh what do you think i'm i'm one of those actresses in your movies like he wants mm-hmm. to direct his real life basically and all the people in it as evidenced by literally by the end of the movie where there, you know, he is, I just, as you said, on the megaphone and telling everybody what to do. And it's just the acceptance that he can't be in control of everything. And he's just inability to deal with that. Yeah. And I don't know what did you think of, I think, I think one of the other famous scenes is on the, with the prostitute, mm-hmm. you know, dancing La Saragina um, for those also, by the FY, for those who don't know, Eight and a Half was the basis of the musical Nine on the stage, and then which became itself a movie. Right. So, if it if you see Eight and a Half and it looks like something very similar, well, yeah, it was adapted to become a musical to a, to a Tony Award winning musical, then a movie. That actually um, kind of makes me want to see Nine now, which I've never seen, just out of curiosity <laughs> to see. And I've heard very mixed things on that film. I've heard it's overall kind of like. This is what Day Lewis did. This one, this is like one movie every five years, and this he chose this. But yeah, I digress. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. So, you know, what do you th- what do you think your interpretation with some of these um, dream sequences, like you know his flashback to dancing with the prostitute, and then how how humiliated he becomes after that encounter? As far as why it's in the film, or just to kind of its general relevance to just kind of like the general relevance. I think he, I think on some level, I think Guido knows he has an, an issue or like some, an insurmountable problem or obstacle with the women in his life. And I think on, on some level, he's, this film is his attempt to try and figure out where he got, you know, where he got broken along the way. Like, and I think that's why he, you know, he talked, he, he, his mistress is in the movie and, and he has this ideal woman who is only ideal because he's never spoken to her. <laughs> and then when he, once he talks to her, she's like, you can't love. That's, that's what's up. And then obviously that's not the answer he wants to hear. Um, so I think he's just, that's kind of more his attempt to trace it back to be like, okay, well, where, where did this start? You know, we see his mother in flashbacks. We see pretty much any substance of woman in his, in his life and sort of shaping his view of, uh, that dynamic and uh, relationships in general. And so I think that's really where, as you said, that's kind of where he symbolically lost his virginity and I guess really mm-hmm. noticed women for the first time. Um, and so I think that's probably, a, she's kind of the the uh, the original, air quote, the original sin that kind of started this he, whole thing. Yeah, because he, he's like a kid. I don't know how many, how you're maybe what, eight or nine? He's not the Something only like one. That. Yeah, he he isn't the only one who witnesses this kind of exotic uh, dance, you know, kind of like the forbidden fruit. Right. Which is why see how seriously he gets treated and punished by other priests in his school, you know, having you know, where nobody, including his mother, wants to even look at him 
the same, and then he goes back to class wearing the dunce hat. I feel like it's just like the women in his life, he either he sees the women in his life more as something to be controlled or something to possess, which is why literally in that fantasy sequence, he's just has like a harem of women, all the women he can, that he's ever met or been attracted to basically, including several that are involved in the production of his movies, of his movie that he doesn't have any like, you know, romantic relationship or anything with. And then all the men in the movie are just, super either critical or just, you know, uh, putting like his men or the men in the, in his life are sort of the source of pressure and the women are a source of both relief, but also where he's the only place that he guess he feels he's able to exert any form of control or any, like any, have any, I don't know, any bearing as far as who he is and what his purpose in life is. But even that is sort of failing him at this point in his life. And yeah, because you know, like I said before, he gets bad. The critics come, you know, they badger him, right? And the press wants keeps asking questions, you know, to, that he has no answer to, that he wants that you know he can't escape from. You know, that's why he just seems kind of like, you know, like when when you first see the rest of the crew in total, he seems kind of just like walking in a big circle around, just trying to run out of the way, get you know, find escape. His, yeah. He wants yeah. his peace wants somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And and so that's kind of, he, he's, you know, as you said, he's stuck. He doesn't, he, he's stuck between, a, you know, between the, the men in his life that want answers and the women in his life that are fed up with his bullshit. And, you know, him being at this, I guess the movie mentions a few times, I think, that he's 43, which I'm in, I'm going to be 37 this year. So I'm like, oh man, uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, back then 43 was for, much further along. Uh, in in life, so he's obviously supposed to be way more burned out uh, than I feel at this stage in life. But you know, I think um, it, it's just kind of the, the classic middle aged, you know, male dilemma just brought to yeah, brought to insane midlife. cinematic life. Go ahead, sorry. It's a midlife crisis. Yeah, he's having a midlife crisis. You know, we're not talking about like kids. We're just talking about you know just him being a director and you know. It'd be with all these people right. around him. Right. And of course, Fellini was 43 when this movie came out yep. naturally. So, I mean, it, it doesn't get much more uh, obvious than that, what the situation is there. So yeah, I think he, as you mentioned, he had the clout at this point in the in his career to make a film basically about his midlife crisis. And uh, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating work just based on, what it's trying to say. I, I just, I wish I had more time before we recorded this, this episode to listen to the, you know, listen to the commentary on the, on the um, criterion disc or to like watch some documentaries, things like that. I probably will do that now after this, just being, you know, yeah, kind I, of inspired to, to uh, dig a little deeper here. Yeah. Like I said, go to criterion channel. I'm sure they have the criterion. Cause some of the, cause some of the movies they have in like, it's like if you had the DVD or Blu-ray, Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that it would have plenty of special features um, because I have the Blu-ray um, as well. Yeah, I actually got the DVD from my local library before they all closed <laughs> because of the coronavirus. So I'll have plenty of time now. <laughs> Nobody will need it back for a while. Uh, but yeah, I'll def- I'm definitely going to have to uh, check out some of those features because it's it's you know I did an episode on um, Mother like I think last year. And that's also, again, very surrealist movie, very more, uh, just much, much more of just a, a, a metaphor in action than anything else. Uh, and just, again, very meta as far as a director dealing with his own struggles, being a creator and all that other stuff. And so I, I you know, it, I, but the, thing, the tricky thing about those is that unless you're super well-versed in those films, it's kind of hard to talk about, except what's up with this, you know, except just a lot of questions. What does this scene mean? What does this scene mean? And I think it's, you know, I think we should obviously mention that Fellini's, the craft here is really strong. Like the way these movies, this movie is shot, the score by Nino Rota, the, the, the uh, costumes, uh, costume design, Oscar winning costume design, um, mm-hmm. it, it, the set design, like everything here is really technically uh, pristine. The only thing that I really noticed, and again, this is mentioned in uh, in like the IMDb trivia and things like that, and I picked up on it in the first scene, was the way that the dialogue was out of sync. Like that was very obvious to me. 
that that was the case. And it's like that was, but that again was the time that was very customary for yeah, you know, Italian, Italian movies. Yeah, Italian films, they usually, it was post, the, the edit, the dialogue was spoken and dubbed post production. Right. You know, they didn't have you know, kind of the, the mix right there on set. I actually think it works particularly well in this movie, though, because it is so surrealist and because it isn't trying to be a, a literal story. It's, it's trying to sort of feel otherworldly in a way. Uh, and, and I think so at, in a way that that actually lends to that aesthetic and makes the movie feel literally out of sync because the dialogue is sort of off, uh, in, you know, throughout the film. And it's in it's 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 as and, and it's evident in the other movies in his other uh, movies and the technical craft um, in his other well this is this was his last black and white film I believe so every so after so after that he went to color so but if so but so just looking at that first half of his works from eight and a half to ver from ver, variety variety light which was his first film. Um, which I believe he co-directed. That was the one he. That's where the half comes in. You could, you, I think, you can easily pick up on uh, just how Fellini structures, how he structures, you know, in the themes, in terms of how he makes, you know, his characters uh, going in, like, because if he, he never was Fellini was. You know, again, again, he was never kind of a straight shooter. He, always, you know, he, for example, he, uh, um, Knights Cabaret is about a prostitute who's kind of a, kind of a, not like down on her luck, but she's kind of she falls in love too fast and gets her heart broken. And Lestrada, you have about this female clown performer and her butting heads with this kind of this domineering. I don't know what I don't know how it would describe the character in La Strada. Uh, basically, her boss is, is basically kind of like a, a dictator. Basically, mm-hmm. again, another great film. So, <clears throat> what is it specifically? Do you think has uh, ha- that that eight and a half has been the film of his? That's like, do you think this is his best film? First of all, and secondly, do yeah. you you do? Okay, that's what I was gonna yeah. say. Why do you think this has been the one that's really uh, that's really uh, has the is held in the highest esteem that it is considered one of the best, best movies of all time. Is it that meta element and the fact that it, it is basically a Fellini movie about Fellini or is it the, the craft itself? What do you what do you kind of uh, what do you think is the, the reason there? It is meta thing. And the fact is that people, you know, you would have to just keep up. People kept on rewatching. This is a film where you have to watch probably 10 to 20 times to get everything accurate. To learn to pick up, you know, the exact uh, meaning of, you know, of each shot of each piece mentioned throughout the film, you know, with every character, you know, you know it because everything overlaps itself. It's it's almost improvisational, mm-hmm. especially when you have everyone in a group. And so, I mean, let's see, rewatch, this is probably, uh, probably not the 10th time, but probably I've seen it. But, you know, you still, you know, I would still have to rewatch and probably get more and more information, but it's just everything I pick up on it is, is good. It's just great. And, you know, it almost kind of inspires, and at the end, it just makes, you know, if you're a creator of something, you, know, you you can find out what you want to say um, about your life or uh, the lives of others. And, you know, like you said, I think it also knowing getting everything in the movie, I think also depends largely on not only in just how many times you've seen the film, but how much you know about Fellini's personal life and his own struggles and things of that nature, because it's a lot of it is on the screen, but it's you, you wouldn't understand the relevance unless you have that context to it, you know, for so for someone like me watching this for the first time and not, not ha- really having that context. It's like I enjoyed the film and I appreciated the film, but it's also more like 
I need to figure out the film now. It's it's a, it's it's a it's a it's a puzzle to be solved, or at least to attempt to be solved. And I think you know that 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 as you said, lends itself to people wanting to go revisit it over and over and over again. Then now it's been decades on and people are still talking about this movie. And uh, I mean, here we are on the podcast talking about it. So there, there's something to be said for films like that that are challenging. And uh, honestly, we don't really get enough of them anymore these days. Even like on the in the indie sphere, we don't... Films are so focused, like audiences just expect to have a, a they, they want those answers handed to them on a platter. And, uh, you know, a movie like Mother, which I already mentioned, which I didn't necessarily love, I appreciate the what it's trying to do and that it is uh, trying to push audiences to try and figure it out instead of be like, you know, shrugging it off and going to get dinner or drinks after, you know, and I, and I think that that's definitely something to be commended. And, uh, you know, for people listening to this that I guess haven't seen eight and a half, we did technically talk spoilers, but not really, because I don't know if I could even spoil this movie. I even haven't seen it. Um, but I mean, I think that's a testament to just how rich it is. Yeah. Uh, have you, question. You seen any other of Fellini's movies or is this like literally the this is literally this is my entry point? Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. I know. So you can imagine me being like, wait, what? What did Brian get me into? Like this? I mean, I, I wasn't <laughs> bored, but it was just more like, I, I don't understand what's happening right now. I'm sure it'll all make sense. Kind of. Sort of. Maybe. After some reflection of my own. Um, but yeah, so no, this is and after. And again, like I said, I I have a tremendous blind spot when it comes to several like classic films, Fellini's work being among them. And so, uh, you know, I'm glad that you brought this to the to the table, literally, because it gives me an opportunity to finally go back and watch it. It's just just keeping, uh, you know, keeping up to date with more, you know, current releases and new things and what's happening. I mean, we were just talking about all the crazy stuff happening with coronavirus and how the industry is being affected. It's it's hard to take time to go back and watch these classic movies. So that's one of the things I, I've mentioned this on the show several times. That's one of the things I love about doing this podcast is that someone like yourself will come on like, let's talk about eight and a half. And I'll be like, oh, boy, OK, Fellini, here we go. Finally got to make that a priority now. Set everything else aside because it's, it's for the podcast. So, yeah, um, Fellini, uh, Fellini Virgin here just uh, entering the <laughs> the sphere. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think what I'm missing, maybe toward the back end of his catalog, I haven't seen like I haven't seen the last movie he ever did. Mm hmm. The Voice of the Moon, because he died in 93. His last film was 90. And The Ship Sails On may have been, like, probably the oldest you'll find in the Criterion Collection. I think I got I got my hand on Intervista, which basically is probably as more self-reflexive you can get. But from the point of him towards the latter stage of his life. Mm-hmm. So what I guess now that we've established that, what would you recommend, I guess, La Dolce Vita or La Strada, one of those next? Yeah, La Strada, La Dolce Vita, Night to Cabiria. I mean, I would say any of those three would give you kind of a good starting point to work with. Okay. If you go into his other films, because um, uh, film like Armor Cord, which was the last of his best international films, it's it's again a lot of layers to it, a lot of different stories connected to it. Um. I mean, I guess you could see Ivitalini, which is one of his early films, but I, w- I would say for just straightforward storytelling, I would say La Strada or Knights of Cabaria. Because even actually with um, La Dolce Vita, it's kind of – it's you follow one person in kind of these multiple days, mm-hmm. one by one. Like there really isn't a plot. It's just you follow this person. I think maybe for just straight up – Storytelling, you look at Nights of Cabaria or La Strada. Strada is like, I would say, my, my a close and close second uh, as my favorite. There you go. That'll be the next that'll be the next uh, Fellini film I, I look into then for sure. Uh, I guess before we sort of wind down, Brian, is there any is there anything about eight and a half that we haven't mentioned that you want to make sure that we get out there? Obviously we're doing sort of a more surface level dive than we could probably go on, do like a whole like uh, seminar on this film if we really wanted to. Uh, but what, anything, any of the big points that you wanted to make sure that we hit? I feel like even if we did this whole thing again and we, we said it, 
completely different, we would still never <laughs> it would be we would still never get deeper into it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Because it, it's just uh, you know it, it's just one where you people where every, where you just have to kind of pick apart bit by bit by bit, and there really isn't anything deeper than what we've talked about. Mm-hmm. It's more of a in, in a way I, I would say it's almost kind of like a tone poem too. Where it's just mm-hmm. a mood, like or a mood piece. Where it's just, this is where my head was at creatively. So I made a movie about where my head was at about a director whose head is in the same place. And uh, good luck with that, everyone. Figure it, figure it out. Let me know what you come up with because my therapist is having a hard time. <laughs> it's one of the yeah. So um, no, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this. Uh, and you know, I, I definitely need to fill in the rest of my Fellini, may, at least the major blind spots, at least the Lestradas, the La Dolce Vitas, the uh, Armacordas and things like that. So, yeah. uh, so if there's, terms, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm saying in terms of international standing eight and a half, it's been consistent with the, uh, British film Institute sight and sound poll in terms of top 10 films among critics and directors. I mentioned one, the, you know, best international film mm-hmm. and, you know, you could say a lot of movies to kind of followed uh, eight and a half of of making movies about movie making a movie about movie making and kind of the back and kind of you know what happens behind the scenes. So you know, Day for Night from Francois Truffaut. You can even go with all that jazz, Bob Fosse. Yeah, even, heck, I'll give you which feel or, all that jazz, which feels like a film very much inspired by this. Even I would say, maybe this is kind of a throwaway, but Sincochi, Sin, Sin, New York, was that the the Charlie Kaufman movie? Oh yeah, yeah, Synecdoche. I because, think. yeah, I think because <laughs> it's about a person who keeps making makes a plate into like a literal city. Yeah, yeah, I think there's there's a long tradition of movies made by filmmakers about the move about filmmakers or, or some kind of creator. And I think, yeah, that's like a whole genre onto itself at this point, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So Brian Suspielis, if there's nothing else, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? You can find me at, at Brian under slash. Is it, is it, is it under slash underscore? I guess. Right. Underscore. Isn't it? An underscore? Yeah. Okay, maybe I'm maybe still the first time I keep confusing it it's it's at brian underscore cine c-i-n-e and you can also find me and my fellow writers in my work on in session film awesome brian thank you so much for coming on to talk about eight and a half i would love to have you back sometime think about what you want to talk about maybe something a little less challenging don't don't overwhelm me but i will i will make a note on that (laughs) less challenging for you (laughs) awesome Thank you so much, Brian. No problem.